Hello, welcome to With Bowl and Spoon, the podcast about people's personal food evolution. This is Carolyn. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you, Shelly. I am so excited to finally get on your podcast. We've been talking about this for years. My name is Carolyn Ristow, and I have a variety of ways of introducing who I am and what I do. The latest was Zoning Nerd Extraordinaire, which, you know, Shelly, I'm sure will appreciate that. <laughs> do you still um, consider yourself the Zoning Nerd Extraordinaire? Yes, I, okay. I, I feel like I'm, I'm like leaning more into that. At the end of May, I left my last employer to be fully self-employed. It's been a crazy journey for the last, what is that, three months now? Two and a half months? I don't even know how long. Is that all it's been? I know. It's been so short and yet like so much has happened. So I have a consulting firm called Details Reviewed LLC. The latest description of it is it's a land use research and education consulting firm. So I'm pursuing zoning from a variety of angles. I write zoning ordinances. So I started with a client this week on an amendment to their zoning ordinance and so I've been back to writing zoning codes. It's it's challenging. And so it's been interesting because my last employer, I wrote zoning ordinances like pretty much all day, every day. And so in the two and a half months that I've been away from that, this week getting back into it was like, oh yeah, my brain needs to be in a certain space. Like I have to remember certain things. The approach that I'm taking in the ordinances that I write is making sure that defined terms are clearly identifiable. And so in this particular ordinance, we use a initial capital letter for any word that you'll find in the definition section, oh, which is something okay. that Pittsburgh zoning ordinance doesn't have any was very hard using Pittsburgh zoning ordinance when he came across a term that was clearly intended to be something specific but may or may not actually be in the definition section and so taking the time to try and find it and then you don't find it and then you know it just was hard. My experience in zoning started essentially from my first day as a zoning employee for the city of Pittsburgh. We've talked about this a little bit before that my background is I have a bachelor of arts from the University of Pittsburgh in urban studies and so my concentrations were comparative international urbanism and I think my other one was the community planning one. The other one was a little bit closer to home so not just international focus but planning close to home. Being the crazy person that I am I took as many writing intensive courses in that process as I possibly could so you could also say that I minored in some version of writing as well. One of, one of the many ways in which we are very different. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've embraced writing. That really is my true passion, is writing. And so any opportunity I get to do that, I definitely go for it. But in that that program, it was a very excellent program. I learned a lot, got a lot of exposure to different things. I had one course called Planning in the Public Sector that was basically like an introduction to practical planning experience. It was taught by somebody in the field as opposed to an academic professor. And our textbook, I think there was like one page or less than a page that talked about zoning. We spent like 15 minutes in one session talking about zoning and that was it and the rest of it was a lot of comprehensive planning or other planning Mm -hmm. approaches community engagement things like that and so zoning had a very minimal role in my actual education I was aware of it as a thing new general structure of like what it did it's a body of local laws that govern what you can build, where you can build it, and how you can build it. And so after uh, graduating from Pitt, I was very fortunate to have a series of really excellent jobs in community development in the city of Pittsburgh. We have lots of nonprofits and community organizations, and I was fortunate to work for a couple of those over those years. And uh, And one of them- You worked with some really amazing people. Yes, I did. 
I mean, I was Aggie Burroughs' assistant at the Bloomfield Graphic Corporation for, uh, I guess I was at the BGC for a total of a year and a half. And most of that time was as her assistant. Part of it was before I became her assistant, I was an intern working on their monthly newspaper where I was able to write. And Perfect. Uh, yeah, that was a very sweet intern gig. Loved working on the paper, loved being able to go on the community, see what was going on and write about it. That opened the door to when Aggie's assistant left, she knew who I was. And so she called me up and was like, hey, do you want to come help? me out because Catherine's leaving and I was like of course <laughs> like there's no other answer to this question so that was really really awesome and uh, we did all kinds of crazy and wonderful things at that point in time she was supporting the statewide advocacy groups that wanted to legalize marijuana we raised funds and hosted a gun buyback program which the city hadn't had for I think it was about 20 years or 15 years or something since the last gun buyback mm, a whole generation um, yeah basically yeah. yeah and the last one had been basically sponsored by the Allegheny General Hospital on the the north side because there had been a lot of gun violence Mm. in that area and the gunshot wound victims coming into the hospital and yeah like the research that I did because I'd never heard of or thought about a gun buyback before working for Aggie and she was like we're going to do this and if Aggie says you're going to do it it happens (laughs) basically she was such a a pioneering powerhouse amazing and wonderful and never took no for an answer. So I learned lots about gun buybacks and we hosted one that was just, you know, once in a lifetime kind of experience. And it was sad to have to make the choice financially to leave that position because that was the only reason why I left was I needed benefits, I needed a full-time income. So the next nonprofit that I worked for was the East Liberty Development Incorporated. In their own way, they were a very, very different organization, but also pushing the envelope, very innovative. So it was very interesting to see how they were trying to creatively bend the rules, I think is the phrase that I came up with for what they do. But I felt, as a young professional, kind of adrift because I didn't know the rules, so I didn't have any ideas to how we could creatively bend them, you Uh know? So that is actually what led me to the City of Pittsburgh Zoning Office. I applied and was offered the job of Zoning Specialist was the title, but that's the position that back in the day when we had a zoning counter was the zoning counter. And so there were Uh a couple of us. Which um, Richard used to call a dynamic situation. That's that's one word for it. (laughs) (laughs) That role is definitely a trial by fire role. In some ways, it's a shame that that is not available to people anymore to get that kind of experience. Um, My my mom was actually talking to me the other day. She went to her first community meeting about a development project. Was it the one about Um, Bakery Square? It was, Uh yes. Which apparently was more contentious than your average community meeting there was shorter tempers you know so that that led to my mom and I having a conversation about planning and community meetings and you know events like that and she asked how I am able to be comfortable in the community events and community meetings that I do go to I'm very strategic in which ones I attend and it's typically only work related I explained to her that I've had over 3,000 conversations with people at the zoning (laughs) counter about zoning and that includes everybody from the architect who doesn't care and who has done this like 20 million times and knows what he's doing. You know, there were people who had never heard of zoning before and had gotten a notice of violation about something on their property that in a lot of cases they bought their property that way. And so they really had no idea why they were there and they were frustrated. They were upset. They were often like on the verge of tears. There were other people who were very belligerent and very, how, how dare you apply this rule to me? I paid my taxes. Mm. I should therefore be 
exempt from other laws because I follow one law is kind of the, the <laughs> argument that they make yep. in that situation. Well, that also um, comes from a place of fear. So Exactly. Yeah. The zoning office was a very scary place for a lot of people. So I've had a lot of experience talking to people about zoning when they're coming in with any number of fears or concerns. Zoning, as we've kind of talked about and if anybody who's listening has ever had to deal with zoning I'm sure you know it's incredibly complicated it's difficult it's frustrating but we have it everywhere there are some arguments for getting rid of zoning altogether because what we have was intended to exclude the origins of zoning was to exclude somebody the fundamentals of zoning as we have it today is built on keeping out the other whoever the other happens to be for a particular area. Whatever racialized population yeah, yeah. was the target for that particular area. Mm-hmm. The end result also ended up being extremely economically segregated. In addition mm-hmm. to trying to keep out certain ethnicities. That was no coincidence. Oh yeah, no, no. Yeah. It's, it was 100% intended. And so that intention still lives on in what we have today. And... When something is ingrained that deeply, you can't extricate it and still have something left. That's why... Yeah, you gotta blow it up. You gotta blow it up, and you gotta start all over with a new philosophy. So the optimistic side is, I am going to talk about this, and I'm going to raise the awareness that zoning is intended to exclude, and that's wrong, and it should not be that way. And maybe that will actually one day lead to like totally blowing it up and starting over. But in the meantime, doing what I can to improve what we have until we get enough people on board to completely blow it up okay you've proven your zoning nerdness yes (laughs) (laughs) i am the zoning nerd extraordinaire there's no argument here indeed we're not arguing with you anymore (laughs) one of your other titles is author i currently have one published book available on Amazon as Zoning Adventures, a home edition paper chase. It actually started as an inside joke because when you're working zoning day to day, it's tough. There's the emotions that we talked about. One of my coworkers nicknamed us dream crushers. People come in with like, they're like, they're, they're finally doing their dream of opening their coffee shop or opening their yoga studio. And then they come into zoning and we're like, well, sorry, you're, you're going to have to do these 20 things before you can get your dream yeah. to come true. So it's it's hard. And so like at the end of the day, the last thing I wanted to do was read about the history of zoning. And I, I just did not have the capacity at the end of the day. And so zoning adventures kind of came out of, you know, the observations of the emotions and the tensions, both on the applicant side and the staff side and trying to bring some humor to the situation so at the end of the day we can laugh and release the tension release the stress get together and be like you know what this whole situation is ridiculous (laughs) because at times it is Uh this book has as books should it's got a life of its own and it's it's opened doors that i never expected it to open it's reached people that i never expected to reach i wrote it for adults but my mom was one of the first people give it to children but I mean it's an illustrated short story inspired by <laughs> children's books pigeon, so, so and it does yeah. have a pigeon as like <laughs> the, the primary character. like character so it, it does have a lot of characteristics <laughs> that when people first see it their brain does jump to children's literature as opposed to adults so a, a couple of the other first people who bought the book uh, apparently ended up buying it for their children when I was, was like actually you were my intended audience <laughs> but okay your your daughter's reading it great <laughs> um, my my favorite story actually next is next generation uh, of zoning nerds. Yes, yes. One one of them thanked me for helping inspire the next generation of zoning nerds. 
I was like, wow, that was not what I intended to do, but okay, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Did you not read the story? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, my, but my, my favorite story is the, the person who told me that he had bought it for his daughter, and she immediately started filling out the form on the front cover. And I am like... I have to look back at that Oh now. my gosh, like, this girl is after my own heart. Of course there's a form on the front cover, of course you fill out the form. Like, <laughs> naturally, like, what else would you do with You're it? like, does your daughter need a mentor? So, yeah, so I'm not sure how she, she filled out the form on the front cover because it's a little small, but the form shows up, like, throughout the book, so there are definitely opportunities. And through your encouragement, one of my other works in progress that was one of the things that I thought I would be doing this summer after leaving working for my employer, but have yet to make it to is the working title is zoning bloopers and curiosities and so it's based on my wall of certificates of occupancies that i collected when working for the city of pittsburgh with storage of spent pickle liquor being one of the early ones and you know my, my original thought was to do something like i think the first working title was like 101 zoning anachronisms bloopers and curiosities because i have 101 <laughs> or more of these you know i think is, is fairly common with writers that you have an idea you start working with it and it just doesn't feel right and i had gotten pretty far along and like had it laid out as like 101 had them listed and cat- was categorizing them and the further and further i got into it i'm like this this mm. doesn't feel like the right approach and i think it was around that time that was one of the times that you and i got together after i had left the city and it was after i had published this book and we were talking and you were like when are you going to write the book of those certificates of occupancy I was like, I've been trying and it's just not working. The format that I'm now doing is sort of like a memoir format yeah, approach. From your time. Yeah, so it's it's tying these all Did together with stories of how I came across them. I have two chapters in seventy five percent draft form. And is one chapter one certificate? No. Okay. I forget how many ended up being in each of these, but you know, like let's say that there's like six in each chapter and I'm weaving them together. One of the other certificates that was on the curiosity side, storage just by pickle liquor being one. Another one was the Tom Thumb golf course. It's about making zoning approachable and just making people more aware in an approachable way. Yeah, you've always made it very approachable for me, and I thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> it was awesome. But we have other things in common, too, because I did urban agriculture and food policy at the city, and you did zoning, and since I was doing urban agriculture and food policy, we started talking about that. Yeah. Because you have a lot of food history in your <laughs> own background. Food has... I guess had a prominent place in my life for... I mean, air, ever. water, food, we need to survive. Yeah, I mean, we, we needed to survive, but <laughs> but just, just my, my, my approach to food has been a substantial part of my life. And it started because I was an incredibly picky eater when I was a kid. I think as a... No, I don't think I know. As I grew up, I became pickier. In my mind at the time, I had a lot of issues with texture and with taste. So there, there were things I can't think of an example right now that like the taste was okay but the texture like I couldn't stand the texture and so those were like the deciding factors for me as a as a child as to whether or not I ate something looking back you know as I've grown older and have learned more about being human I've been able to see uh, some other patterns of what was going on and I, I think somebody I don't remember who it was that my mom had talked because I mean, I was a kid and I don't think I was there in the conversation. <laughs> but my mom has, has told me at different points that she had talked to people about how picky a, an eater I was. And I believe somebody did tell her that it is a child's way of 
having some measure of control Mm -hmm. Um, because children really have very, very little control over things. Again, that's not what my brain was telling me. It was telling me, like, this texture is really weird. I can't it's funny, deal like, with it. It's funny, like, the psychologists are like, oh, that kid is trying to institute some control in their life. And you're just like, ew! Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, somewhere in between may lie the truth. But... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of self-growth and, you know, understanding and how to better deal with emotions and, and processing. Because... I I do crazy things like I leave jobs and I start my own company. So (laughs) (laughs) the baggage that I have as a human really stands out when you make choices like this. So I've been doing a lot of processing. That's a continuation of something I've I've been doing for most of my life. That's so insightful because another thing about you that I think stands out in my mind about how unique of a person you are is everybody talks about home ownership. And you are the only person I know who's bought a house and then been like, mm, nah, I want to rent again. Yeah. So that, I think, it says to me that you're very self-aware and that you know yourself. And so now are you saying that you do these things and then you look back and say, why did I do that? Or is it like you are processing who you are and realizing and then making that move? It's a little of both. Okay. Because um, it seems like it's, it's a little troubling to, to say like, oh, if you do that, then maybe something was wrong with you. But no, you just know yourself really well. So I admire that a great deal. (laughs) And also for listeners, because we're talking about evolutions and talking about how we make the decisions we do in our lives regarding, you know, our lives um, and food in in some ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about eventually on this food podcast. (laughs) Um, But, you know, to to say that, you know, people that start their own business might might have a little mental anguish they need to deal with. Like that, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, everybody has mental anguish they need to deal with. For me, in the portion of the recording that may or may not end up in the podcast because we were in a car and there was background noise, we talked a lot about how my family and the way I was raised was very much about rules and that there's basically like one way to do anything. We were generally, it's hard to say because like we seemed at the time to be happy and like a cohesive family. So if you have a happy and cohesive family, like why is the child trying to control things with food? These things don't compute, they don't add up. For me, if there's been an evolution, I always felt I had to fix myself because it was wrong that I didn't eat food. And then the first big decision that I made that's kind of in this chain of of decisions was I left college in the middle of a semester, which is definitely not following the rules. (laughs) Yeah. I knew that where I was wasn't working for me. I don't know that I could articulate why. I, I thought the way that I could articulate it was that something was wrong with me and that needed to be fixed. And I needed to be in a different space to figure out what that was. So this this idea of like being in a rules-based family and the psychologists, or again, whoever it was that my mom talked to, saying that my food choices as a child were a measure of control and my own internal like no it's because this has a weird texture you know Mm -hmm. whatever it was now looking back decades later like I can see like all of those were true and so uh, one of the like most poignant illustrations of this is I remember as a young child eating peanut butter off the spoon like that was something I did and I loved it but by the time I was in school I couldn't stand the smell of peanut butter if anybody had brought a peanut butter sandwich to lunch I could smell it from across the table 
That's like peanut butter M&Ms. I could smell those a mile away and it's giving me a headache. So all along I was like, this is so weird. I remember eating peanut butter off the spoon and liking it, but I cannot stand the smell of peanut butter. That continued all through grade school. So the thing that I see now, again, decades later, looking back with the growth that I've done, the, the processing I've done, that's mm-hmm. a lot of what I've been doing is processing my, my life, my experiences, and the emotions that went along with that. Because rules don't leave much room for emotions, basically. When I was five, my dad left his job, his career, his profession, and his vocation. He completely cut all ties, went back to school, and got a PhD in a completely different field. His last position in his first career was an incredibly toxic situation, and he did not have support from his supervisor or the next up. It was just a really, really bad situation. And having been through some of those now myself, I understand the toll that takes on somebody. So this is what the background of my family was as a five-year-old. But, you know, my parents had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. They can't have the conversation with the kids of like, here's what's going on. You know, it's tough. We just knew, okay, dad left one profession and he's now going to school to get a PhD and everything's fine. And, you know, we're all together. We're all healthy. We have food. We have shelter. We haven't lost anything on the surface. But again, from what I've experienced myself now, and as I'm sure you're aware, Shelly, like there is turmoil in that kind of situation. And even if it's for the best or for better, there's still so much much going on underneath the surface a lot to process a lot to process and somehow well I mean they do say the kids are very intuitive they can sense things so I can't help but suspect at this point in my life that I stopped eating peanut butter when my dad left his job and went back to school to change careers because something was up and I I had no way as a five-year-old to express that or or to process it or deal with it. I had no idea. So it sort of became, peanut butter somehow became the thing that embodied this. Okay, that's wild. It's crazy, right? But, you know, it's the only thing that, like, this occurred to me just a few years ago. I was like, wait a minute, this whole peanut butter saga, it started right at the age that I was when my dad made this big shift in his life professionally. All I remember is eating peanut butter and enjoying it. And then the next memory I have is I can't stand the smell of peanut butter. I don't have any intervening memory of peanut butter. So how do you feel about peanut butter today? Oh, I love peanut butter. Oh, excellent. But peanut butter is such a wonderful food item for me to describe my food evolution because it shows the, again, like I, I got increasingly picky as I got older. Pasta sauce is the other one that like we have photo documentation evidence that I enjoyed pasta sauce <laughs> as a kid because you know pasta sauce leaves a mark and you know yeah, as a kid all kids when, have those pictures right. <laughs> yes so we have those pictures that are photographic evidence that I loved pasta sauce once upon a time but again in school age years I only ate pasta with butter uh, let me rephrase that Pasta with butter and Parmesan cheese. Okay. That is what I ate. Pasta sauce is another one that, again, I ate as a kid, but as I got older, I could not eat it anymore. Hamburgers are another really great story. I don't think I ever liked hamburgers. Mm. I I don't know a time when I did, and we don't have any photographic evidence of this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I distinctly remember, again, this is like, we were at McDonald's. I was of an age where, I guess, sitting was not the greatest thing, and so, like, I'm standing next to the table because that's what I want to do, stand, not sit. 
So I don't know what age that is, but like three or four, maybe. I don't know. And so my mom had ordered, you know, McDonald's hamburger for me. And I'm trying it like a bite or two into it. I declare that I do not like this. The only thing I like are the pickles. And so I was like, okay, we figured this out. And so I, like for years, we would go to the grocery store and be shopping and mom would be like, okay, let's get some pickles. And I'd be like, are we getting the McDonald's pickles? Because I only like the McDonald's pickles. I don't like the other kinds of pickles. Eventually I learned... <laughs> that I like dill pickles. Mm -hmm. I do not like bread and butter pickles. Yeah. I cannot stand those. For years I called them McDonald's pickles because sure. I had that mm -hmm. that memory. That's adorable. But you know my mom would would make hamburgers for dinner somewhat regularly. So for me again in grade school putting the hamburger on the bun ruined a perfectly good bun. <laughs> And so, do not put the hamburger just on put the bun. pickles on the bun. No, no, no. Just have the bun on one side of the plate and the hamburger on the other side of the plate. Make sure they do not touch. Oh. And then I would, so you I would, would eat the beef. It wasn't the beef that you well, didn't I, like. No, I didn't like the beef. But oh, okay. that was the only way I would eat it. Was okay. Because if, if you put it on the bun, you're ruining a perfectly good... The bun is great. There's nothing wrong with the bun. But if you put the hamburger on it, you've just ruined the bun. So you're going to like choke down the hamburger because yes. you have to. Yes. But you're and going to enjoy do, the bun. I do choke down the hamburger. I slather it in Heinz ketchup in order to like force it down. And I force it down. But the bun... Put some butter on it, and it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that, that was one of the, the pseudo-compromises that we had in the food world was, okay, fine, I will choke down this hamburger, but do not put it on the bun. <laughs> and there, there were a couple times when my mom forgot and she put it on the bun, and I was so mad because then the hamburger juice got in the bun, and like, the Terrible. bun was so great before we did that. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so, again, very... Very picky. So how did you get out of that? How did you so come again when I when I was because you eat a lot of great food now. Yeah, <laughs> when I was nineteen was when I chose to leave college in the middle of the semester. So I needed to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and who I wanted to be and things like that. And so as most nineteen year olds are trying to right figure right. Out. And so I moved in with my mom at first and. It was just not a good place for me to be at that time in my life. And so then I moved in with my dad and it was with living with him and his wife for a few months and then uh, had a stable enough job that's like, okay, it's time for me to get my own place. And so I moved out and had my own apartment in various apartments over the next couple of years. The stable job was working in a grocery store. You know, so now like I'm, I'm living on my own, but I, I had been making my own meals, I'm pretty sure since I left. College. So like when I moved back in with my mom, it was okay, but we do our own things. Like she was done making two meals to make a meal for her and for yeah. me. Like we were past that point. So I made my own food. After I got the job at the grocery store and living in my dad's house and I'm making my own meals, but I'm making pasta with butter and parmesan. And that meal of pasta with butter and parmesan would be half a package of pasta with butter and parmesan for that meal. And then it, so like maybe, maybe at lunch I'd eat half a pop, box of pasta. Dinner, I would eat the other half of the box of pasta. And so I was consuming oh, wow. a huge... A pound of pasta um, a day. Yeah, basically. Which is a lot. <laughs> With no vegetables. No vegetables, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I started putting on some weight. Maybe it was the weight gain or something, but I decided like I need to learn to like more food. And I went about learning to eat more food. I think I started with an approach like, I mean, obviously I like pasta. <laughs> that was something that like I could start with and I could start adding things to the pasta. It's what all picky kids love is pasta. Right. <laughs> and like one of the things I remember is we, we would take picnics as, 
as a family when I was a kid, and my mom would bring pasta sauce. And there'd be two versions. There'd be the one for everybody, and then there'd be the one for Carolyn. But it wasn't that I didn't eat any vegetables, but I had very limited vegetables. And so the pasta salad that was for me was pasta, Italian dressing, and carrots. And it's like, I like that. So as now this young adult, like trying to find myself and find my place and find a healthier way to eat, mm -hmm. I use the pasta salad concept as my mechanism. And so, you know, I knew I liked pepperoni, for example. And so, like, I would get a stick of pepperoni and the carrots and the, the pasta and the dressing. And then I started adding, you know, maybe one at a time. But, like, I would experiment and I would put something else in it. And I started realizing that, you know, there's a lot of other really great foods out there. Not just pasta. I, and I also got better right. at, like, portion sizing. And so, yeah, so it was very hard for me to find a way to like rice. But, again, several years later, after moving to Pittsburgh, after starting at zoning, through the city, got connected with a nutritionist who I've been working with ever Our since. Our wellness program through yes. Richard Butler, right? Yeah, it was, I, it was related to the wellness program. Early on in working with this nutritionist, we had a conversation about the rice because I would be following the meal plan or whatever, the rice meals, like, always feeling really hungry or, like, there were problems with it. And so we talked about the rice that I was using. And he's like, yeah, that brand of rice and, and style of rice, every single thing of value in rice has been extracted from it. Oh, and so it's the, it? it's the easiest to digest. It's, I think it was river white rice or something okay. like that. And mm -hmm. so like the germ, the brand, the whatever the next thing is, all of that has been extracted from it. And it's super easy to digest and therefore it's not filling and therefore it doesn't provide any, it no doesn't nutrients. have anything. Yep. Um, so of all the rices, that was the least valuable as a food item. Yeah. And that was the one that I was using. Then I started switching to jasmine and basmati, and I don't have the same issues that I was having mm -hmm. when I was yep. using this, like, absolutely nothing left to it, rice. <laughs> so now I eat rice. So, yeah, so then I think the other thing that I did in that early stage of, like, reintroducing foods was I went back to ragu traditional pasta sauce and tried pasta sauce on my pasta. <laughs> and it worked. And so now, like, I eat pasta sauce all the time with pasta and so that was one of the foods that I was able to reintroduce and it was partly because I, I knew I used to eat it so that would be a safe thing mm -hmm. to like got try. picture proof <laughs> got picture proof this was a thing and it worked so yeah starting starting in my early 20s I was intentionally expanding my food palette and reading a ton of leadership and self-help books looking for a path forward that would be interesting for more than just a few days or a few months. Like I, I needed something that was going to keep me engaged for the long term in order to build a career on it. Because I in school, like I was very interested in like all of the subjects I was taking were great and like this was great and that was great and I had uh, regular customers in the grocery store who would keep coming up to me with suggestions of like, oh, you should like the one that I remember is you should go back to school and, and get a degree in international affairs. I was like, yeah, cool. Like I enjoy traveling and like. You know, it sounds kind of neat, but I don't know that's enough because a lot of things sound interesting and sound neat. And so finding the thing that I could like yeah. really get into was an extended journey. So I finally think I've got it figured out. And the solution that I come up with was I wanted to solve the problem of vacant property. I knew that there was a lot going on in Pittsburgh because, again, uh, my mom was here in Pittsburgh. My grandparents were here in Pittsburgh. So I, I had a lot of connections, had heard a lot about what was happening in the city, visited it enough to to have seen changes that were going on. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm living in a small town in Connecticut. There's not much available here, especially now that I, the car that I had briefly died and I can't afford a new car. You know, options are really limited. So Pittsburgh, I knew, has a great cultural scene. I knew it had decent buses. And they were trying to do things with vacant property. 
I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to Pittsburgh. It's big enough, but it's not too big because like cities are scary. So this will be good. And besides they have a million universities. So one of them is going to have the degree <laughs> I need in order to finish my undergrad to get the, the job. So I come back to Pittsburgh, end up enrolling at Pitt, doing the urban studies program. One of the things that Pitt does that I think is really neat is they have what are called international field trips. While they have like the standard semester abroad thing, they also have these shorter field trips. So it's it's a single course, typically like two weeks. You go and you do that one course for two weeks in wherever it is. So that's really nice. It just gives you a sampling. Yeah. And so the one that I ended up doing was in Istanbul. And again, like I've been expanding my food palette for several years now. That's huge. And that was actually part of the reason why I ended up in that Istanbul. That was a leap. Yes. That, that was a very <laughs> nice, nice arc that you have there with your hand. In, in a way, like my decision to move to Pittsburgh, like there was a similar thought process of like, okay, Istanbul. It's technically in Asia, but it has enough European influence that I felt that it would be a gradual introduction to Asia. Because at that point in my food journey, I don't think I had started eating any Asian foods yet. But to go to India or Japan or China or, mm. you know, to a go place like that. deep into the Asian continent, continent would have yes. been a big... Would have been very, very scary for me, I mm-hmm. think. Both from the food perspective and the cultural perspective. Everything would have been, like, completely outside of my comfort zone. So Istanbul felt like pushing the boundaries of my comfort zone, but not too far. There's also, like, an administrative staff person who who comes on this program. And so she had been several times to Istanbul. And so when I expressed my interest, I think that was one of the conversations we had was I was concerned about food. So she let me know that chicken is incredibly plentiful in mm. Istanbul. Okay. So I, like, knew, I can I, live chicken, on I chicken. love chicken. Like chicken's great. Okay, good. I know there's one item of food. Gotcha. And she may have told me some other things. I forget. But I do remember her saying like, there's plenty of chicken in Istanbul. So I go to Istanbul. There is a subway right around the corner from our hotel. So like subway sandwich chain oh, no. restaurant. I think I only ended up availing myself of that one night and that was the night that we had gone to another little restaurant on the street and I had ordered the chicken but this chicken had like kind of sizable like red spots on it and I don't know what it was I still don't know what that is but it is something with a pretty potent spice level and like it was um it had probably been um yeah I guess marinated is the right Mm -hmm. word like where it sits in the sauce for a while before it's Mm -hmm. cooked so it's it's ingrained in the meat. And this was like well into our, our trip. I, th- I think this is, you know, like at least eight days into our trip of two weeks. So I had had lots of chicken at lots of different places and it had been fine. But this one, the spice was, I could not handle the spice. So like I had a bite or two and I was like, I can't handle this. And so I ran down the street, got a Subway sandwich, brought it back and ate it with everybody else who was eating the food of this nice restaurant. I think there was one time maybe when I couldn't get chicken, but I got like a steak salad. It was really, really good. The seasonings and and things that they used were different and they were delicious, except for this one that that had too much of the spice. (laughs) That was just Um, you hadn't adapted to that level of spice yet after eating buttered noodles for, you know, 15 years. I don't don't think so because now I, I have some tolerance of some spices, but there is still a particular spice again I don't know what it is but I can tell when I have it and, and I think it's that same one that I, I oh don't that's really interesting that that kind of spice is not in my tolerance but other spices like yes like I you know on a, on a one to ten scale I have occasionally gotten a three you know like I, well, I can do yeah, that different um, different foods different spices have different levels of heat yeah. for different people even yes. like we went for Indian food once with our friends uh he's from Texas mm. 
And so we had Indian food and, and I was like eating it fine. And I had, I was new, like maybe just three or four years in on my heat tolerance evolution. And, you know, he was just like, whoo, this stuff is hot. This is hot. Yeah. I'm going to make some Tex-Mex for you. And I was like, okay, cool. So he made this chili and that blew my face off. Yeah. And he was fine. He's like, yeah. but this isn't even close to as hot as that is. And yeah. I'm like, okay, it's just the jalapeno versus whatever Indian right. pepper was being used. We had different tolerances for different spices yeah yeah Yeah, and i and i've definitely noticed the the spice tolerance thing because um there was a period of time when i was in my house i would frequently get like grubhub food delivery and at that point in my life chicken tiki masala had replaced macaroni and cheese oh my god that's amazing yeah so like as a kid like my comfort food mac and cheese craft mac and cheese out of the box best thing in the world after i've expanded my palate that doesn't work for me anymore and I get to a point where it's chicken tiki masala is the thing. And so there was a nice restaurant with like a good chicken tiki masala near me that delivered through Grubhub. But even though I said like, please use like one spice level, like it's the kind of place that they make the chicken tiki masala of the day. And it, you know, sometimes it was a three, sometimes it was a five, but, or maybe they had two batches of it, one at three and one at five, but it, they weren't making fresh for each person mm-hmm. and so whatever they yeah. had was basically what I got and so there were definitely days when like the spice was really like for me really pushing <laughs> the threshold I was also getting very frustrated at work so I frequently needed comfort food and so I started ordering this like probably at least once a week maybe even a couple times a week and I was good at that point at splitting it in half so I would have it over the course of two nights because you know Portion sizes from restaurants are so big. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would be eating this multiple times a week, each week, and I started noticing that, yeah, I'm fine with the higher spice level that beginning of that. You can develop handle. it for sure. And then when I stopped needing comfort food that frequently, that tolerance unbuilt. You reverted back to your intolerance of spice. Not like 100% intolerant because I still ate some spicy things. The higher threshold or the higher tolerance level didn't stick when I stopped eating that frequently. But yes, you can change that as you can change other things as I've clearly done throughout my life. The other hilarious Istanbul food story is one day at lunchtime we're out at it was kind of like a waterfront park i guess was where we were and there was one like food car Mm -hmm. like street vendor and they were selling hot dogs and hamburgers we've talked about hamburgers before and you resolved that no okay so i still don't eat hamburgers and like hot dogs i've always loved hot dogs like hot dogs have always been on the okay list we're at this food kiosk thing and i'm looking at the options and the hot dogs are sitting in this red suit and i'm like what do you do (laughs) holy shit i and i I forget if this was after the spicy chicken or not but like by this point like i do have an awareness regardless of whether it's before or after that spicy chicken that like it's red stuff red stuff in istanbul probably means there's spice in it like it's it's not like a runny ketchup sauce that it's in or like a barbecue sauce or anything like this is this, this is, is a hot dog. What are they doing to hot dogs in Istanbul? I have no idea because <laughs> I was terrified of this red soupy thing that the hot dogs were in. Like, so terrified that I ordered a hamburger on the bun with everything on it. You know, lettuce, tomato. My food tolerance has expanded significantly, but hamburgers were not on the list yet. But the, the hot dog was so scary looking that I had to order the hamburger. And you know what? Hamburgers are amazing <laughs> That's awesome. they are so good but you know one of the things that they do in istanbul is they put mayonnaise on everything 
Like, mm. you know, we're, we're Pittsburgh-based, and so, like, everything gets ketchup. But in Istanbul, it's mayonnaise, not ketchup. Like, when you sit down at a diner kind of place, it's mayonnaise on the table in front of you. You have to request the ketchup bottle to be brought mm-hmm. up. That's their approach to everything. And fries dipped in mayonnaise, oh my gosh, that is so amazing. <laughs> I think this hamburger that I ordered from the stand must have had mayonnaise on it. Lettuce, tomato, onion, bun, hamburger, and mayonnaise. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And so then when we're going out to like our lunch places or our dinner places, I start ordering hamburgers when we go to these places to eat in Istanbul. And again, they come with mayonnaise on them. They're so good. So I start eating hamburgers. <laughs> And it's great. I appreciate them on the bun. Like, it's it's okay <laughs> to have them on the bun and have, like, the lettuce and whatever kind of sauces come along with it. Like, this is good. This works. Cool. So, it took a trip to Istanbul for me to learn to like hamburgers. That is, yes. wow. So, cool. had to get that story out there for you. That's a great one. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for telling that. Fast forward, you were talking about the wellness coach, so you were still kind of figuring stuff out. So the nutritionist, my first visit to him was uh, because I had decided to do the half marathon and was trying to figure out, like, how do I... Because I, I was never that physically active. I'm all excited because this is the timeline that I was part yes, of. You, yes. yes, you knew me at this <laughs> point. This. Like, at this point, you knew who I was. We had had many conversations. You might have done the bee dance for me by this point in time. I love your bee dance. Yeah, so like I, I decided to do the half marathon, and I had intended to walk it, but as I was doing the training, I realized that the stress of speed walking for that amount of time was worse for my body than a light jog was. And I had tried off and on throughout high school to run um, my PE coach. He had like a program to help people get into running and I tried it and it didn't work so finally in this like trying to like figure out how to do a half marathon in the limited amount of time you get to to complete it I finally learned that I didn't have to run at my fastest speed like there were other ways to because my fastest speed is slower than anybody else's jog essentially is what (laughs) it it always felt like when we were doing the mile in school I hated running so I have no no concept of I would be running all out and I'd be at the end of the line (laughs) So it never occurred to me that running slower was okay, you know, until just I... Just a little bounce in your step. Exactly. And that's all yeah, you need. yeah. Yeah. And so it, it took the, like, I'm speed walking. This is, like, not working so well. And so changing the stride, not the pace mm. from a, a walking stride to a running stride, that kind of solved the problem. It lessens the impact, really? For me, for the way that my body okay. works, that worked better. So I'm doing more cardio and I'm doing more activity and like my food intake is not working well with this. And so I go and I see the nutritionist and I'm like, how do I eat when I'm training for a half marathon? Mm-hmm. And so he gave me some tips and so that was just a one-off thing. I've completed the half marathon, but in the course of doing that, at some point, apparently I got a stress fracture in my foot. And it took me a few days to realize that. And you finished but, it, though. But I finished it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember um, that part. Yeah. And you were, like, in a cast boot thing yeah. for, like, yeah. a year or something. Basically. Like. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, it was from... Uh, the marathon was the beginning of May. And by January, I was back to fully functional. But it felt like forever. <laughs> and... And so at this point, like, I've put on a lot of weight. So I I try all the tricks that I had done uh, when I was in Connecticut when stopped eating the pound of pasta a day, started introducing other foods. Like, I had extremely 
great success with losing weight. Well, you're also, what, 10 years younger at that point, so... No, I was only about five, year, five years younger. Oh, okay. But I was also working in a grocery store where, like, I... In my five-hour shift, I got 10,000 steps. Mm. So I was I was very mobile and just changing up what I ate. Like, the pounds just melted away. And so I go into this latest post-injury weight loss convinced that it's going to be that easy again. It wasn't. To be fair, like, at this point, I do have a Fitbit. And, you know, I was still working the counter at that point. And I was on the side of the counter that was the furthest from the copier. Uh, because we were in a paper-based system, everything was paper, and so I had to copy everything. And so every applicant that succeeded in being able to get a permit, I had to walk from my side of the counter to the printer and back. And then, you know, going back to the customer service thing, like I, I was somebody, somebody would come in, and we don't have the digital paperwork that we need, but the file room is just next door. So I would run to the file room, see if I could find the documents that we needed, and then come back. Mm-hmm. So I also got pretty close to 10,000 steps on days that I worked to the counter. Again, I'm still very mobile, and again, I don't have a car, and I'm walking a mile to get my groceries and back, and I'm still fairly active. And, you know, so I'm paying a little bit more attention to, like, my portion sizes and, and things like that. And, again, I eat a lot more variety of foods, so there's vegetables, there's protein, there's carbs, and, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job of all these things. I lose a few pounds, and then it stops, and I plateau, and I keep saying plateaued, and I'm like, what? Like, it was so easy last time. And so then the wellness program at work, there was an announcement that, you know, if your BMI is such and such amount, you can have free nutrition visits through the insurance. And I was like, cool, I don't know. So I went and yeah, my BMI was in the right category in order to qualify for the fully covered nutrition visits. That started my monthly visit with a nutritionist that has continued ever since. And a lot of people are like, well, why are you still talking to nutritionists? Like, no, no, I was just wondering because you don't work for the city anymore. So how do oh, you still get those yes, visits with the nutritionist? Because it is an insurance thing. It's not. Oh, it's not. Okay. It wasn't necessarily the city. The city just told the gotcha. employees okay. that no, our no, insurance does it. I mean, that's really interesting. How regularly do you meet with them? Once a month. Interesting. Once every four to six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, because it feels like I should be seeing him, but I still have a couple more weeks before my next visit with him. <laughs> and so actually, like every time I've made a switch, like when I left my last job and was needing to find my own insurance through the insurance marketplace I run the plan that I think I'm getting by my nutritionist to make sure that he is still covered under the plan that I'm going to get. That is definitely a deciding factor when I have multiple plans to pick from is my nutritionist covered because not all plans do it. UPMC is not good at covering nutrition so your look obviously wasn't the like what do you mean seven years later you're still seeing nutritionists once a month but a lot of people do have that reaction we're not dealing with the same issues like our, our bodies change life changes mm-hmm. like his his company is called case specific nutrition and he's looking at all life factors he's seen me go from like the quiet little city employee who just does her job to this person who has her own business and is trying to shake up the zoning world you know he's seen me through like the stresses of the jobs that I've had and all these different things and at different points there have been different things that we've done through food so again like I started this to lose weight we lost the weight all was good but then I kept seeing him because he kept saying let's schedule the next one I'm like I mean it, it sounds like you've got a food therapist yeah basically and someone who you talk about like this happened or that happened or I had this reaction or this feeling or this yeah, taste or whatever yeah, and, yeah. and then you can talk it out and so of all the people that I know in my universe 
so far. That makes sense for you because you yeah. are very inquisitive. You are very uh, self-aware. And I can imagine that you guys have tons to talk about because you're yeah. just so aware of things. And yeah, I love yeah. that for it's you. <laughs> like, we have a really hard time keeping to our scheduled appointment. Like, <laughs> but I mean, among the things that he's helped me figure it out, like early on, I, I forget why, but we were having a conversation about something that was happening with me and food. And he was like, you know, what I think is going on is your body doesn't produce enough of the enzymes that break down vegetables. And so if you take Bino, the pill has the enzyme in it. So it okay. adds that enzyme to your system if you don't already produce enough. I mean, ideally you take it before you eat, but you can also take it right after you eat and it still works. He does a lot of speaking and like avant-garde. Yes, he's in Pittsburgh okay. and he's very avant-garde in the nutrition field. Which is another reason why I enjoy working with him. Uh-huh. He told me this. And so, like, I, yeah, that was probably early on. So, six and a half, seven years that I've been taking Bino when I eat raw vegetables. And it works great. And about four or five years before I started working with him, I had gone to my doctor because I was having intestinal pain and had pretty much every test under the sun. I had, um, I don't know what the, the easy ones were but like I had the the early easy tests I had blood tests I had CT scans I had a colonoscopy you know like every other every test until like they got through the list and they're like all right the only thing left is an exploratory laparoscopy to see if it's your appendix and if we're in there we're going to take out the appendix whether or not it's causing any issues and I was like well that just sounds stupid (laughs) and so I said no we're not going to do that the the pains ended up subsiding but throughout the course of, of all these tests and things, like I had explained to the doctors, I had, because this was right after Istanbul. Sorry. So at the beginning of that summer, I had gone to Istanbul for two weeks, like expanded my food palette. and Brought hamburgers. So, been in, yes, hamburgers were yes. in the mix now. Salads, like vegetable salads were like a big thing for me that summer. So most dinners, I was having a full vegetable salad for dinner. And I was eating a lot of mayonnaise because Istanbul had introduced me to the mm. beauty of mayonnaise. Like forget ketchup, <laughs> mayonnaise is the thing. By the end of the summer, like, I'm having these intestinal pains. And so, like, I tell the doctors, like, I've changed my diet, you know, and I eat mayonnaise now, and, like, I eat vegetables now, and, like, you know, and they're like, whatever. Don't touch it. Diet couldn't have anything to do with stomach pains. Yeah. So, again, like, the the pains subside, and so I'm fine for years. And then, you know, I go and I start working with this nutritionist, again, like, four or five years later, and he's like, oh, have Bino before you eat raw vegetables. And I was like, wait a minute. I was having a giant portion of raw vegetables every night, like night after night. My body can't break it down. No wonder I had intestinal pain. If I had known about Bino, I wouldn't have needed to have a CT scan and a colonoscopy. And like, I, I never have pain like as bad as that one summer. But if I like run out of Bino or don't take it with me and I have a lot of vegetables, like, yeah, like I feel discomfort. As long as, because I had, I had a salad for lunch today and I made sure to take my Bino and I feel fine. And so it's things like that that, you know, are the reason why I keep going back to them. Like, I don't, you know, there have been various times where I'm like, I really don't know that I need any food guidance right now, but why stop? <laughs> you know? And like, we do talk about more than food. So I can talk to him about the stresses of my life and my work and different things. Several years into this, so this is December 2019, I have feminine difficulties. I've had very, very severe symptoms all my life. And so I found hormone treatments that help. By December 2019, I was starting to have the old symptoms start to kind of like peek through sporadically, like very randomly. I would have cramps, but I wouldn't be having a period Mm -hmm. or, you know, just here and there. And it wasn't consistent or anything. Just weird stuff was happening. And so like one day, December 2019, I have my nutrition appointment and he's like, how are things? And I'm like, like I had cramps last week and I'm really, they were not, they were bad and like it was just not I don't know what's going on and he's like 
well, have we ever talked about the FODMAP diet? And so FODMAP is F-O-D-M-A-P. So FODMAP is fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So F-O-D-M-A-P. The goal of this is to be low FODMAP. I've heard it explained elsewhere that these are short chain carbohydrates Mm -hmm. and depending on how your digestive system works, they ferment in your gut more so than other foods do. And that causes discomfort, inflammation, and other issues. And so the low FODMAP diet is basically an anti-inflammation diet. And it's an elimination process. So you start out and you basically eliminate all high FODMAP foods. And so you only are eating low FODMAP. And so you get a good solid base. Your gut becomes very happy if this is the right process for you. Your gut, like instantly within days, I just felt so much better. Give me an example of what a low FODMAP diet would be. Like, what would your breakfast consist of and lunch and then it's dinner? It's incredibly complicated. <laughs> you can eat stuff in all food categories. So we have to be zoning geniuses like you to be able to live by this low FODMAP diet. So the, you don't, I, don't see, I see you don't have a dummies guide in the books that you have here about this. <laughs> I'm sure there is a version of that. I think he gave me like a cheat sheet, like a table that was stuck on my refrigerator for years of here are grains, low FODMAP, high FODMAP. Here are uh, fruits, low FODMAP, high FODMAP, vegetables, low FODMAP. And so for example, like oatmeal. Here, here, sample. Okay. Sample week menu. Oh, gotcha. Okay, this is exactly what I was asking. That's what you were looking for. You should have a tab on this one. You'd have porridge for breakfast, banana bread, brown rice porridge, but still porridge. You can... I can, I can a ver- visualize A porridge. variation of it. So the, the ingredients that you use in it are going to be important. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the, 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 the brown rice porridge is one of the recipes in this book. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like, so you can have porridge. You can have... I mean, Peanut I, butter, quinoa with oats. Yes. Um, scrambled egg and toast. I mean, yeah, that's very... Uh, there's granola and milk. Uh, there's even a pancakes recipe, and I'm yeah. sure it's got certain ingredients in it, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But that's really reasonable. The names look really reasonable, but then when you get into it, it's like, well, milk doesn't actually mean cow's milk. Oh, right. It says uh, lactose-free milk. Yes. Let's see. So there's chicken soup, uh, Greek quinoa salad... Uh, Caesar salad with chicken, chicken salad with pecans and grapes. I mean, this, yeah, it sounds ever fried chicken fingers with mustard dipping sauce. Those are lunch. Um, Then for dinner, you can have like pot roast. Oh, and they give you this. I noticed one of them said leftover pot roast sandwich. So yeah. that's you have dinner of pot roast and then the next day you have it for leftovers. And you got tilapia with tomato pasta. I'm assuming that's like gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Okay. Salmon. With sesame spinach rice. Yeah, it's, I could totally get around it. It seems reasonable, but you're saying it's making specific choices of ingredients in mm-hmm. each of these. There's a lot you can do, but like fruits, for example, all fruits have some amount of high FODMAPs in them. But the ones you mentioned, strawberries and bananas, are low on the FODMAP. Huh. I learned a different thing about strawberries. Strawberry seeds are very hard to digest. Our bodies can't do that well. So when I had my giant strawberry patch at my house, I was eating strawberries like multiple meals a day mm-hmm. and still freezing when some season, because, yeah. because my, my plant produced like gallons of strawberries and so I started great. having stomach issues. And so I, oh my because gosh. I see my nutritionist every month, 
I went to him and like, I'm having stomach aches, but I'm following the low FODMAP diet. Like, what's up? Were you keeping and, like a, or do you still keep like a food log? No, um, I'm, I'm actually not doing a very good job of following low FODMAP because it does take a lot of intention. You can't buy pre-made low FODMAP very easily. There is a meal delivery service that, actually there's two of them that I know of now, that do produce low FODMAP only meals, but meal delivery services are incredibly expensive. So that's the thing. The best way to be 100% low FODMAP is to make it yourself, make Mm -hmm. everything yourself. I mean, it's the same with like gluten-free stuff, like my mom's celiac. Yeah. And she finds that the best way to do it is just eat at home. Yeah. She knows everything that's in it. Yeah. And I and I enjoy cooking, but my life has been such for the last several years that I don't have the capacity when I come home to do uh-huh. that. So I'm still aiming towards low FODMAP, but I'm not 100% low FODMAP. And not everybody that this works for needs to be 100% low FODMAP. The idea is you'd go straight all out low FODMAP for, I'll explain in here, I forget how many weeks you do. Just set your base, settle your stomach you know, get a, a very good solid foundation. And then you try adding things in to see what works for you and what doesn't because some of the things work for some people. So I did the full elimination. I started reintroducing foods and I don't remember how many things I reintroduced. Not a whole lot, but like everything that I did instantly, I felt terrible. I, you know, energy levels changed. My stomach was unhappy. And were you I, introducing new foods based on this or just like yes. new foods that you always ate and you're like maybe i could eat this again i mean yeah i mean it, if it's, it wasn't it's, low fodmap right yeah so reintroducing higher fodmap mm-hmm. things and like testing out to see like what portion size your body is capable of handling so yeah so these were all foods that i had eaten before and i was trying to figure out can i eat a little bit of honey and i tried a little bit of honey in uh, my tea or something because that was something that i that i liked doing every now and then i mostly drink tea straight but sometimes like i like a london fog and i had a little bit of honey and like i don't remember if i got diarrhea or what but like that kind of stuff happened like instantly like and i had just bought like all kinds of really great local honeys and so like i had this great collection of honey it was instantly clear i think i did try like a couple times took a break tried it again and same thing and so But that that's why it's so you important. You know for sure that it was the right honey. because oh. I because I had that solid mm. base that I felt fine and I felt good and then I only introduced honey and did not feel good. So I tried that with a couple different things and everything I tried it with I had a bad reaction and at that point I was in one, another one of my transition phases where I'm trying to figure out like what I'm going to do. I've started my business but I'm still working part time. You know what's the balance? I'm writing my book so I've got a lot of other things I'm working on and so doing a very fine grain like trying every single food type and reintroducing it to figure out what level of tolerance I have for which things. After trying a handful of things and they all were not good, I was like, I don't have the capacity to try and figure out if there are some things that I can reintroduce. So I stuck with 100% low FODMAP because at that point in time, I did have the capacity to like use this cookbook and make my own food with ingredients that I knew I was, was able to tolerate. But when you were doing that, when you're on, when you're following that diet, you you feel good. I felt good. I had energy, way more energy than I, than I have on average. I was. So it's not just the discomfort. It was that you felt dragged down and and lacking energy. Interesting. Okay. Um, I, 
I didn't need to eat nearly as much. I think before that I was eating six meals a day. After like I got into it, I was eating four meals a day and I felt fine. But yeah, and like my, my allergies, um, I have seasonal allergies and they were, I didn't have allergies that spring. Oh, wow. Nothing noticeable. <clears throat> so do you um, think the reason that the FODMAP works for you so well is also the same reason that the Beano works for you? Maybe there's the enzyme that's not able to break stuff down for other foods, not just the um, vegetables? My, my nutritionist hasn't talked about it being an enzyme, but it is that my body cannot digest certain foods effectively. But there isn't a Beano equivalent solution to For these the other, other food types. Yeah, yeah um, no, that makes sense. It's really interesting. Wheat is an issue. It's the carbohydrate in wheat that's the issue. And that carbohydrate is very similar to the carbohydrate in onions and garlic. Oh, right. And You're saying you can't have onions and garlic? That yeah, would kill me. Yeah. This is where like things get wonky with the FODMAP diet is garlic infused olive oils are mostly okay because it, hmm. it depending on how they're processed but like the oil in the garlic and the onion is fine it's the fleshy part mm, okay where the problem is so I could saute garlic in a pan and then remove the garlic oh as and, long as you don't ingest the actual yeah, thing you can't yeah. So yeah, so I I I can still I keep a bottle of garlic infused olive oil around so that I can still get garlic flavor when I'm cooking. Corn is another weird one. Corn meal is fine, so like corn flour, corn tortillas, you know things like that. Corn chips, all those are fine. But corn on the cob, not fine. So there there's a lot of like weird quirks that go along with it that like high FODMAP foods depending on how you eat them it varies so basically it works for you yes this FODMAP diet yeah I mean I yeah I feel really great when I'm able to stick to it and you know it's not just the digestive system it's my, my nutritionist describes it as we have like an inflammation bucket. There are various things that can trigger inflammation in our bodies, but you only have so much space in that bucket before it starts to cause complications. Allergies are something that trigger inflammation, and the way that my body digests high FODMAP foods triggers inflammation, and whatever that causes my migraines is triggering inflammation. And so all of these things are filling up my inflammation bucket until it's overflowing. And so by doing the low FODMAP diet, I've cut out that inflammation. And so the allergy symptoms don't get as severe. The migraines don't get as severe or happen as frequently. Oh, okay. And my, my body just overall works better. It works great for me. And it sucks that it takes so much time and effort to be able to stick to it. It's a little bit easier than it would have been 10 years ago to not be inundated with high FODMAP stuff. You know, like there's, there's gluten-free rolls and things that are available now. So like at some restaurants, like when you're going to get a hamburger, you can get a gluten-free bun option. What about the sugar content? in some of the gluten-free stuff is that a concern or is that not i mean yeah like added sugars like you don't want to do added sugars just in general some of the gluten-free things actually aren't low fodmap so that causes some challenges as well you can get cauliflower pizza crust and it's gluten-free but it's actually not low fodmap cauliflower it seems is like a really high fodmap crazy idea to me like I, yeah. i've never been a fan of that although i have always been a person who steers away from fads or trends yeah and so yeah. that's that's yeah. one of them yeah, yeah. cauliflower but, rice cauliflower whatever right yeah rice crackers those are good because it's, it's a rice-based mm. thing and mm-hmm. rice is low fodmap and, and it just happens to be gluten-free but that's not the point right that's not the point that's how it's marketed because somebody's decided that marketing 
gluten-free is a moneymaker. But most people that gluten-free things work for, according to my nutritionist, aren't actually having issues with gluten. They're having issues with the carbohydrate in wheat. That is a very complicated topic. Yeah, it's a complicated topic because there are people that are extremely sensitive to gluten, but most people it's actually not the gluten. Again, one of the weird things about this low FODMAP is wheat is a high FODMAP thing, Uh a high FODMAP food. But when wheat goes through the sourdough process, the sourdough starter eats the short-chain carbohydrate for you. So you don't actually have to digest that part. So sourdough is a safe wheat product for for me. I love that because sourdough is better anyway. Yeah, sourdough is great. And so we we have a a sourdough bakery now in Pittsburgh. Driftwood? Yeah, Driftwood. Okay. I don't know when it opened, but I was meeting a friend in Lawrenceville and she was like, oh, can we stop in here? I want to grab something. I was like, all right. And I go in and I'm like, wait, this is a sourdough bakery. They're, they're a pizza shop and their crusts are all sourdough crusts and they make sourdough breads, they make sourdough cookies, they make, you know, so much, most of their stuff is all sourdough based. And so I was just so thrilled that like, you know, I wasn't, I yeah. didn't get anything that day, but I was just like talking to the person at the cash register. I was like, this is amazing. This is so wonderful. I'm so excited. Cause like I have this diet that I'm on and like sourdough is like the only wheat product that I can eat and feel okay. And she's like, yeah, like we, so many of our customers, and so like I was, we were talking about the gluten versus the, the carbohydrate, or that, that's how I was talking about it, uh-huh. the gluten versus the carbohydrate. And she's like, yeah, like so many, so many of our customers that say like they, they need gluten free, they come here and they eat the, the sourdough and it's fine and they feel fine it's because the gluten's not the problem. That's just how uh-huh. it's been marketed. And so if you can eat sourdough, you probably don't have a problem with gluten. You have a problem it's with probably the carbohydrate. probably not celiac. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm glad this works for you. I'm not a fan of calorie-restrictive diets. I've nearly... I want to be dramatic and say I've nearly died on them. I've never nearly died. It's just... I felt like I'm going to kill somebody is really what Brett would say. (laughs) My body does not like to be restricted of anything. That's one of the things that I've liked about working with the nutritionist that I work with is he also doesn't subscribe to like the elimination for the sake of elimination. He understands that our bodies have cravings and desires and you know so it's it's more about finding balance than about restrictions yeah. and and not doing things. I mean the the hardest thing that he ever had me do was in that first weight loss phase where I could have a slice of cheese on my one slice of cheese on my sandwich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or mayonnaise or I guess avocado. What if you had half a slice of cheese and half the amount of mayonnaise? Well, that would have been fine. But... <laughs> and a little bit of avocado because fuck you, it's a vegetable. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is... See, I, I'm not good at this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the, like well... <laughs> Don't make of, me make decisions <laughs> like that. <laughs> what, what he had me doing, basically, was like... Like, the breadth of what I ate was fine, but just shaving off the portion sizes a little bit. Mm-hmm. And... I was fine with all of that, but the cheese, man, that was so hard to only put one slice of cheese on my sandwich. And I, I mean, can you even taste one slice of cheese in a sandwich? Can, <laughs> but, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, in part because I am putting two slices of cheese on my sandwich right now. And What? Um, yeah, that's one, because hard cheeses are low lactose, so they're okay on oh, the, okay, the good, FODMAP. Good, good. 
the like ricotta cheese, cottage cheese, like those are high lactose, so I don't eat those. Oh, interesting. Um, ice cream is high lactose, but oat milk ice cream, oh my gosh, that is amazing. Yes, I've had that. So I don't feel bad about that. Cow's milk, I don't drink cow's milk anymore. Um, I, I mean, I suppose I could do like the lactose-free version of cow's milk, but almond milk works pretty well for me, and so, and oat milk. Although oat milk is extremely high calorie, and almond milk is low calorie, so. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, totally bizarre. I don't understand how. Obviously, we could talk all day. This has been an amazing conversation, and thank you so much for weaving this amazing story for me to be able to share on my podcast. Do you have anything else that you want to mention or talk about, or you know, maybe pin for next time? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess the pin for next time is I need another food evolution at this point in my life. I, oh, wow. Um, I know that the last two years, year and a half, actually, stress eating has been a major part of my life. And I have put on, to me, an immense amount of weight. I think it's about 40 pounds that I put on in the last year and a half. And I know it's tied to the stress eating. So I, I found that I was having a lot more migraines and Starbucks chai latte with oat milk does a lot to help with a migraine. Oh. I don't know why. Wow. I wonder what that but is. That's really interesting. And it's, other brands don't work as well. It's the Starbucks one. Something about the mix that they use and like the stuff. They Maybe it's extra in. caffeine. That's one source definitely of additional pounds and just like I would get mm, home. Because the oat milk, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the sugars and like I was getting the big ones. I wasn't getting like a little. Because like, somebody else was buying? No, because oh. I needed that much from my migraine. Oh, shoot. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, I would come home and I would just be so exhausted and just ate to stay awake because I, you know, can't go to bed at five o'clock. Like, you know, so that was kind of like a habit that I got into. Like I would eat dinner and then I'd be so tired that I would just keep eating to keep myself awake. You know, just just habits like that that I developed in the course of this job. And so now that I'm not in that job anymore, I had expected that all to go away. And I've plateaued so to the point where I, I don't seem to be putting on weight, at least certainly not at the same rate, but I'm not losing weight. And I know that I need, my body doesn't feel good with this much weight on it. I've been trying to focus more on self-care and have had some success with that. I found a really great yoga class. I've also found a Zumba class, which that was why we met later this afternoon as opposed Mm -hmm. to earlier on the Saturday so that I could make it to the Zuma class. And so I'm trying to get into the pattern of of going to that multiple times a week for my stress, for my overall health and sanity. And, you know, maybe some weight loss will come of it, maybe not, but I will feel better. Cardio, intense cardio, I have found is the best preventative for migraines for me. I'm fairly confident that if I get into the habit of going twice a week to the Zumba class over the course of the next few months my free the frequency of my migraines should reduce significantly how often are you getting them now um i mean i have one right now but (laughs) this this storm we're having is you've done this whole interview with a migraine yeah (gasps) it's a low it's a low grade one i'm surprised Um, you have the light on though sitting in the dark is probably very good for that yeah it's okay like this this one's not developed far enough for that to be an issue but it's annoying. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, well, thank you so, so much, though, for talking with me. And we'll, we'll talk again yeah. and uh, keep apprised of your next yeah. evolution. Whatever that ends up being. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> You're welcome.
with Bowl and Spoon, was written, produced, and hosted by me, Shelley Danko Day. Original theme music is by Paula Breeze and Friends. Thanks for listening. See you next time. great i love this theme song these guys are awesome polybries and friends i'm sure they're available for weddings bat mitzvahs whatever you can find their information on my website thanks for sticking around and listening this is fun <laughs>